At a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Monday, May 15th, 2023 edition. I am Justin Klein. I'm excited for this hour with you on today's radio show and podcast. And that is to help you make the most of your capital, your hard-earned money, and grow it consistently. And I do that by giving you my perspective, bringing you some topics that I think are important for you to understand, but also answering your questions and trying to find out what's on your mind and giving you my straight and unbiased answer. No hidden agenda. And the business of investing is about having discipline, weeding out the emotions of fear and greed, and looking forward, investing through the rear th- through the windshield, excuse me, instead of the rear view mirror. Too many people do that. They look backwards and extrapolate either positively or negatively. And it's really about what's going to happen in the economy and companies over the next three, six, nine, twelve months. And so this program and podcast is for you. It's driven by your participation. So our toll-free listener line is open for you at 888 chart And my main focus point today looks into the story behind this question. Is, a, is investing in emerging markets worth the trouble? We're going to go back and look at some data. Uh, you'll be probably surprised to know that the term emerging markets or emerging market indices is relatively new. If you've If you think of financial history, it actually was launched in the the late 80s. So you're talking less than 40 years ago. So we're going to look at the pros and cons of available options for investors. Time permitting, I want to touch on the debt ceiling. We're going to look backwards and say, okay, we've seen this play before. We've seen these headlines before. Should they be taken lightly or should they be taken seriously? So we're going to look at that. Also, investors are very nervous about the market. Hint, hint, that should be actually a good thing. At least the contrarian investors are going to say that's, that's a good thing. So we're going to look at the number. How dour are people on stocks? Okay. And then lastly, what was the last one? I have, I have one more. I don't have it in front of me. I have another one we can talk, talk about. But we're going to get to all of that and more, including your voice bank questions. One is in regards to Whirlpool, the other on Apple Hospitality REIT, and I have an iTunes review question as well. And then I have my perspective, which I really like today. It's on the history of just stock markets. 
the concept in general of trading the ownership in entities, corporations mainly, but you know other types of entities. And we're going to give you uh, a background of how it evolved throughout the years, and it's probably going to continue, going to, going to continue to evolve. But I think it's always good to look back and have that perspective. So I've got this all planned for this episode of Invest Talk, and of course, we're taking your live calls at eight 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 ninety nine chart. Now let's take a look at the market today. It was a nicely positive day overall. You had a nice rebound in a lot of the commodity names, so that was uh, that was positive. You had the value side of the market. It was actually fairly balanced between the growth and the value side if you look at it overall. The broad U.S. market up 0.42%, but small caps, they did the best up 1.16%, 1.16%, which, you know, throughout the year, the small caps have been lagging, but this is a day where they did much, much better. And I think a lot of that has to do with um, potential stronger uh, domestic economy uh, and uh, obviously uh, a weaker dollar uh, that we saw today. You had gold up uh, a decent amount, so that was that was nice. Uh, you had some M&A activity in the uh, energy space. So that's always positive for uh, markets uh, when companies are out there paying premiums for other companies, creating efficiencies, uh, synergies, uh, and having the confidence to you know, make those big decisions. And this was a, a pretty big, big merger. So um, a lot happened in, in today's market. And it was a nice start to the week as we head into, I think, those final negotiations on the debt ceiling. But now let's pivot over to the InvestTalk Voice Bank at 888 chart Hey, Steve and Justin. Uh, this is Dan from Walnut Creek. Thanks in advance for answering this question. I was curious what your thoughts are on MetLife. It's dropped quite a bit, but I don't know. I'm not too sure what's causing this to happen. So I was wondering if you can shed some light on it. Thank you very much. Bye. All right. This is a perfect example of understanding the assets that a company must own. Okay. That a company must own. And, you know, while MetLife is a good company, what do they do? They sell life insurance. They sell life insurance. And if you sell life insurance, or annuities, they sell annuities as well, you are matching your assets with your liabilities. Okay, that's what these companies do. That's what insurance companies do. They're always trying to match when their assets come due, and they're typically investing in pretty conservative investments like treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, sometimes corporate bonds, but relatively conservative assets. And their maturity of those assets are going to match when they expect to pay out on these life insurance policies. And remember, they are they have actuaries that, that make these calculations, and then they, they try to do that, try to match those, those assets to liabilities. Well, life insurance companies have long liabilities. So they need long-term assets, which means they own a lot of treasuries, long-term treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. And what happened with the banks? They own them as well, and they were hurt on their balance sheet with uh, their interest rate risk. And so a lot of these 
life insurance companies are getting hurt as well. And that's why I say within the insurance space, I like the property and casualty insurers. Why? Because they're they're matching their liabilities. Their, their liabilities going forward are, are much more short-term, right? Think of insuring your car. Okay, what are the odds you're going to get an accident in the next year, two years, right, of all the people that they've insured over the, over the sh- short time frame? And then they're investing that money, coming due, and, you know, paying out those claims, and they're earning a profit. And most of the profit from the insurance companies comes from the, the income and the interest that, that they earn over the time of holding those assets until they have to pay out the, the premiums or, you know, uh, sorry, yeah, pay out the, uh, the coverages, um, right? They're investing their premiums that they're, that they're bringing in each month. So that's what you're seeing with MetLife and all these other insurance, uh, life insurance companies. And that's why I prefer the property and casualty insurers within that space. Thanks for the call. Now we're going to a quick break. Please remember that you can call anytime and leave your question on the Invest Talk Voice Bank. Or if you're listening via the live stream on AM 1220 radio in the San Francisco Bay Area, you can call right now at 888-99-CHART. When listener questions are played on the Invest Talk podcast, how do you guys determine a value stock? The caller voices are amplified many thousands of times. Just wanted to get your opinion on JP Morgan and BAC. How do you see this uh, looking forward? I'm 25 years old and have a question about retirement funds. And the unbiased answers from Justin Klein. That's why it's trading so cheap, because there's a lot of regulatory risk. Here. And Steve Peasley. I, I kind of like it here. If I was going to buy Tyson food, this is where I'd buy it. Benefit the entire Invest Talk community. Thank you for what you guys do. That's why 24 7, rain or shine, no matter how simple or how complex, your questions make a difference. Symbol BKE, what's your outlook? And Invest Talk is made better by the power of you. So don't forget to call 888 99CHART. Justin Klein is here and ready to take your calls live. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Hello, Steve or Justin. I'm calling today about two interesting Canadian oil companies, Tulamine Oil, ticker symbol T-O-U, period T-O, and Imperial Oil, ticker symbol I-M-O. I know the former is an exploration and production type oil company with more upside with the price of oil, and it appears to be one of the more profitable oil companies in Canada. The one thing I don't like about it is that it pays a large amount of its cash as a dividend, which lowers the potential for dividend growth. Other than that, would you agree that it will be one of the better oil stocks? My part two question is that when I was researching Imperial Oil, I saw that Exxon was nearly 70% of the company. So I was wondering if Exxon would be better for a long-term hold in my portfolio. As always, thank you for your wonderful service, and I'll be listening on the podcast. All right, looking at two Canadian oil names, and these type of companies tend to do well when oil prices are high. Uh, they've obviously stalled out along with uh, and oil prices over you know here in the seventies and eighty dollar range. Uh, so they've they pulled back and understandably, <clears throat> but they they tend to be pretty high oil prices because they tend to have a lot of their uh, oil as oil sands, 
and that can be uh, tough to refine and you don't get quite as uh, big of a premium for that type of oil. Uh, and so, you know, they just need tight oil market in order for them to make good profits. And that's why their, uh, their business tends to ebb and flow pretty dramatically. Now, which one is, well, let's, let me go to your last question, Imperial Oil uh, and Exxon. Well, if you own Exxon, you're going to get a, you're going to have a lot broader, uh, a lot broader exposure to the energy patch. Remember, Exxon is very vertically integrated uh, and, you know, they have refining operations. So does Imperial Oil, but it, it's more worldwide as opposed to Imperial Oil is going to be, you know, very uh, Canadian focused. But it's a very good company, um, so it just depends on how much risk you want to take, how much diversity do you want. Uh, Imperial Oil is going to be a uh, bigger upside, but also uh, going to struggle more in, in, in rough times. So uh, it, it's just a higher risk name. But once again, very good. Very good uh, assets, cash flow. Earnings are coming down for $11 last year, so it's be around $6. Um, so it's not exactly cheap or expensive. Uh, your other one, Tourmaline, it looks like it's a much smaller company, market cap about $19 billion, whereas Imperial is $26 billion. Actually, yeah, not, not too much smaller. Um, let me take a look here. This one's always harder to, to, uh, to analyze those Canadian names because they don't get uh, as clean of a data as they do on ones that are uh, here, that are trading here on our exchanges. Um, but I'm going to go with let me see here yeah Tourmaline is cheaper I'll say that so definitely a cheaper name the technicals look a bit better um, so if I'm picking one it would be Tourmaline alright let's go to Paul in San Francisco let's talk with national debt yeah we're getting close to the, the limit of the national debt which is over 31 trillion and will that happen will we, we see that didn't that happen before some of these earlier uh, according to my memory it did but it turns out wrong and, uh, and Biden just wants to spend money and print money and spend money and print money and that causes inflation inflation is a tax on the middle class and the poor but not the wealthy well you know this is a situation that has been years in the making um, right so it's uh, definitely both sides of the aisle uh, right um, you know uh, they've they all want to spend on their uh, their pet projects, uh, and you know this debt ceiling issue is something that I've been hearing about for you know pretty much my entire uh, career. You know, over twenty years, you know, I've heard this many times. There's a lot of political brinksmanship here that is ultimately not going to amount to. Uh, I, I don't think it's really. I think it's more headlines than anything else. Um, you know, the decision to uh, spend money, it happens when you talk about budgets. Um, and so, and, and that includes spending, but also taxing, right? Um, so under uh, every administration, the debt's gone up, really, uh, except for, I think, the, uh, yeah, I think the Clinton administration, the very end of the 90s because of demographic issues and, or not issues, but 
uh, tailwinds, shall we say, and uh, a strong uh, tech sector. You know, we had a, a surplus for a short period of time, but that was pretty much it. Um, so you can't really blame one side or the other. They're both very culpable in this. And if you are blaming one side or the other, well, you're using your politics to do that. All right, we're heading into a break. So give me a call at 888-99-CHART. One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors. And I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888 99Chart. Now, my focus point today looks into the story behind this question Is investing in emerging markets worth the trouble? I'll look at the pros and cons and the available options for how to gain exposure. Now, let's look into this. Now, emerging markets arrived as an asset class in 1988. That's when MSCI uh, launched the Emerging Market Index. And the original index only had 10 countries in it. And it didn't include many of today's top emerging markets, China, Taiwan, and India. So in a way, they, they missed the mark, at least originally. Now, the current MSCI standard has a list of about 24 different countries. And based on IMF data, the GDP of these 24 countries grew to 36.3 trillion last year from 2.6 trillion in 1998. Sorry, 1988. So you can see the type of growth that they've sustained over that time. Now, the MSCI Emerging Market Index nearly quintupled in its first six years. And this is a good example of, you know, popularizing an asset class and money going from zero in it and then having some exposure there. The issue was that it quickly turned south and over the next decade from about 94 was the high. It languished and it was down a lot. Um, even through the dot-com bubble money was flowing out of there and into uh, obviously tech names, especially if you're trying to take risk and earn high returns. That was a, a better place to be in the late nineties. Then you had the dot-com bubble burst and money flowed back into emerging markets. And obviously the China story was a big part of that. And in the early 2000s, you know, the emerging markets ran up again and then peaked uh, in uh, 08 and then has uh, pretty much languished ever since. Now, why should you invest in emerging markets? Well, there's, they're fast growing and there's a lot of runway left. China and India each have higher populations than all the developed countries combined. That's a lot of human capital that can be harnessed if the countries are, are, are well run uh, and they have a, a, a strong direction uh, economically. Now, according to IMF data, the 24 countries make, that make up the MSA index total to today combined to be 13.4% of total GDP. Sorry, that was in 98 or 88, excuse me, 13.4. Now it's 35.7 as the end of last year. And over the past decade, emerging markets are responsible for over half of the world's GDP growth over that time. 
Now, China has been a big factor in that. And now it represents 28% of the index. So when you're investing in emerging markets, that's a lot of exposure to China. And you have to ask yourself, do you want that? India has, is 17% of the index. It was only 2% in 88. And emerging markets are a pretty good diversifier. They have fairly low correlation to our domestic markets. So if you're heavy in the developed markets, the US, Europe, this can help diversify. Now, why should you avoid it? Well, <clears throat> they're high risk. Since 88, the standard deviation of the MSCI Emerging Market Index was seven points higher than the all world, the, the world index, which is all the developed markets. So a lot of volatility there that you have to deal with, and that can go both ways. So companies, fund managers, they have to navigate a lot of legal systems, market structures, instability, and you have to be willing to handle that volatility. So the next decade may be amazing for emerging markets, or they may continue to languish. I think a lot depends on which ones uh, are connected to the developed world and which ones are more relegated to, uh, you know, the, 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 the rushes of the world, for example. Now there are different types of ways of exposure, broad-based ETFs, MSCI has one, FTSE has a, another index. FTSE excludes the Korean, uh, South Korea. So that's one differentiator there, but there are a lot of broad-based ETFs. But if you look at performance, rules-based active ETFs and mutual funds, they tend to do much better. And this is an example of when I say the indexing is not always good for every asset class. Indexing is not typically good for uh, emerging markets. It's better to have active management. Okay, And there are even exclusionary ETFs that, that weed out parts of the emerging market uh, countries because of various rules or just uh, getting rid of one country overall. There are definitely ETFs out there that uh, exclude the um, China, for example. Okay, So... Uh, I think, are we going to go to James? I think we're going to go to James. We're going to go to a break first. James, you are going to be up next. Now, the next Invest Talk story behind this question. How do new I-bond rates compare with CDs and savings accounts? Now, with savings accounts, expected to cool later this year. Some experts say I-bonds may be the best way to grow your money. That story tomorrow, but for now, I'm Justin Klein, and I'm ready to take your questions live at 888-99-CHART. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It is official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive 
at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Every Invest Talk podcast is made better by your questions. So don't forget to call. And if you've never called, Justin and Steve are waiting now for your finance and investment questions. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Let's go to James in New York. He wants to talk about mortgages. Uh, yes, I currently have about 25 years left on my mortgage at a 2.9% interest rate. And I was wondering if I were to pay the remainder of the mortgage off now, if I had the means to do that, would that be advisable during this climate, saving 25 years worth of interest, or would I be better serviced investing that money? Well, <clears throat> right now, you would want to be putting that money into something very safe, short-term treasuries, right? You're, you're accruing interest on uh, the, the mortgage that you have, but you'd accrue more interest in putting whatever money you would put towards that mortgage in something like short-term treasuries. You yield 5%. So you're actually risk-free, basically, earning more then you're being charged on your mortgage. So until mortgage rates go below, or sorry, treasury rates go below that number, it would make no sense to pay down that mortgage because you're easily, with no risk, earning more than the cost of that mortgage. So no, it wouldn't make sense. Now, once again, if one day the like, Fed cuts rates again and we're back down to two percent short-term uh, treasuries, now you have another conversation. You are now costing yourself more than what you'll earn on your investments. So at that rate, no, it doesn't make sense to, to pay off that mortgage uh, right now. Could it eventually? Sure, depends on your risk tolerance. It's obviously a very, it's a conservative decision to pay down a mortgage, especially at a rate that low. Does that make sense? Oh, definitely, yeah. I knew I had a low mortgage, it was just a, issue of uh, the security decision to pay it off but i don't i absolutely don't have to but we should say a thought uh, but yeah and, and and i get that thought and uh, there's a lot of people that that security makes sense but as long as what you're investing in is very low risk like treasuries then and you're making that spread then it makes zero sense to pay off the mortgage uh and a lot of people are are, are in this uh in, in this uh bucket where they might have extra cash and typically might pay down that mortgage. But right now, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, you can go put your money in a high-yield savings account and treasuries and so many different assets that are yielding 4 to 5% that it's, it's just uh, pointless to be paying down a mortgage at this time. Uh, and a year from now, that might change. But right now, no. Thanks for the call. Now, my perspective looks at the history of stock markets in general, the concept in general. And you might think that the U.S. is where this all started. And the, the fact is, no, it actually started way back in the 13th century in Europe. And the U.S. stock market didn't become a thing until about the 18th century. 
Now let's set the table. Now, uh, what is a stock exchange? It's uh, it's where you exchange physical or digital or a physical or digital place where investors can buy or sell stock or shares in publicly traded companies, and the price is driven by supply and demand, as well as the investment investor sentiment, uh, global economic trends. People want to buy shares. The price goes up. Less demand. The price drops. That's just how it's worked throughout time, and it's the first. Uh, the first appeared in the 17th century uh, in Amsterdam. That was the first place that this, uh, this started. And the idea of trading goods dates back to the earliest civilizations. And early businesses would combine their funds to take ships across the sea to other countries. And there would be a marketplace for these things. And throughout the Middle Ages, merchants assembled in the middle of a town to exchange these goods. And obviously many of them bought up it and bought up certain goods and speculated on uh, the price going up. Now in Antwerp, which is today Belgium, became the center of international trade by the end of the 1400s. And it's thought that some, uh, and for people who need to borrow funds, wealthy merchants would lend money at high rates. So there's a lot of speculation and even back then. And Merchants would sell the bonds that backed these loans. So not only were they trading uh, physical goods, a lot of commodities, but they were starting to trade bonds. So it's not just stocks being traded, it's bonds as well. Now, the first stock market began in Amsterdam in 1611. And here in the U.S., it started in the late 1700s with the Buttonwood Agreement. I don't know if you've ever been to New York, 68 Wall Street. Uh, I've been there a few times. It's always a, a cool place to, to visit, just uh, to see history and all the statues. Uh, I was on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange back in the late 90s. That was fun. Um, but, uh, you know, that was the start of the New York Stock Exchange. And the agreement organized securities trading in New York City and was signed on May 17th, 1792 between 24 stockbrokers. And it took many centuries for it to become as big as it is today, the New York Stock Exchange. And in 1817, the Buttonwood traders observed and visited the Philadelphia Merchant Exchange to mimic their exchange model, and that created the New York Stock and Exchange Board. So they kind of stole a little bit of what Philadelphia was doing. And they all had to pay a, a, a fee to sit, sit on the exchange. So this is something that uh, this is something that is a very interesting part of, of history for me, anyway. And the stock market surged in the during the twenties, and obviously crashed hard during the Great Depression. And in 1971, trading began on another exchange here in the U.S. called the National Association of Securities Dealers Automated quotations, also known as the NASDAQ. And in 92, they joined forces with the International Stock Exchange in London, and that became the first intercontinental securities market. Obviously, it's all digital. There's no physical exchange. You'll see a window in Times Square where you'll see uh, uh, security prices moving, and that's always uh, interesting, but it's uh, all digital. Now, the NYC is still the largest stock exchange in the world, and it's largely digital now as well. Um, 
But there are exchanges around the world, London, Tokyo, in China, India, Canada, Germany, Philippines, France, South Korea. So there's a lot of them around the world. Uh, so there's a lot of, uh, I love that history just to see how it evolved and, and uh, the innovations that came with the NASDAQ. And uh, I'm glad, uh, hof hopefully you guys learned a lot about the history of markets. Now let's go to Joseph in Kentucky. He wants to talk about index funds. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Um, yeah, so I'm 44, just turned 44 a couple days ago, and I've invested in um, SPA, SPY since I was like a teenager, but and I transitioned over to Vanguard's total stock market fund. But my uncle, God rest his soul, he, like after the financial crisis, he said, uh, just if you're going to do a single stock, he said, in the, you know, being from Kentucky, he said, put your money in Churchill Downs. Uh, CHDN, and I've been putting money away since right around the financial crisis. Never have sold. It's it's you know a lot of people don't talk about that as a stock, but it's been killer over the years. And I think it has a really good moat. But obviously, there's competition in that sector or in that industry with gambling. But um, Kentucky recently legalized sports gambling. I was just curious from your professional experience. Um, it's done really well for me over the years. Um, I think it still has a good run left in it, but I was just curious what your professional thoughts based on uh, the stock and the company uh, going forward, maybe for the next five, seven years. Well, uh, we had a call on this, I believe last week and you know, it's obviously have, having nice growth and the gambling trends around the country are to become more open and allow people to gamble uh, more in, in more, uh, areas besides just Nevada and, and uh, you know select Indian uh, reservations, etc. And I think that's just a, a trend. I think it's going to happen with a lot of uh, call them sin industries, right? From uh, cannabis, right? Uh, probably going to be legalized at some point, and uh, you know this is uh, just part of that trend. Uh, and so you're right; they do have a good economic moat. Uh, they're, they're the name in horse racing. Right. And so I think uh, this is a solid name. Is it uh, a bit expensive right now? Probably. Um, but earnings continue to ramp higher and expectations continue to go up. So, um, you know, I would worry for you. It sounds like you've been putting a lot of money away in it. So it's probably uh, maybe too overweight your, your overall portfolio. So in good times, you know, I've learned throughout history that in good times, that's when you want to be thinking about trimming your position, obviously from a tax perspective, you want to keep an eye on that and make sure you're not selling too much and creating uh, too big a tax problems. But uh, these times are when you want to slowly diversify into uh, big moves higher. Um, so I don't know what a percentage your overall liquid assets are. You probably want to keep that less than 20%, hopefully less than 10% really uh, of this particular name. Um, but I see no problem in the near term. Just know that you know, with the legalization of gambling that, uh, you know, does a, another name come in and try to usurp their, their, their stranglehold on the, uh, on, on the horse racing market, right? Is it MGM? They, maybe they find it as a, uh, a growth driver and they start to invest in, uh, horse, uh, ra horse tracks throughout the country. Uh, and that could, you know, create a, a big competitor, um, for them. And that's always a possibility. This is what business is about, 
right? Capitalism is about, it's about competition. And right now I don't see a, a, a big competitor to them. So I don't see anything near term, but know that down the line, that certainly could happen. And that's why you don't want to get overexposed to just one name. All right. Thanks for the call. Let's go to Sam in San Francisco. Wants to talk about PayPal. Uh, thanks, Justin, for taking my call. Uh, my question is uh, PayPal stock has come down quite a bit uh, recently after they announced the latest earnings. Um, do you think this is a good time to get in? Well, technically, no, there's not. It's not. I don't see any major support here. Uh, obviously, the market didn't like their latest earnings report and their margins coming down. Uh, they were more reliant on uh, third party uh, payment processing. Uh, and so that that hurt their margins. Okay. And so the, the market didn't like that. And technically, I don't really see anything that's going to stop this from going down in the near term. Now there is support around $60 per share, but it's not major support. Okay. Um, is it on the cheaper side? Yes. But the technicals continue to deteriorate. So until I see some sign of reversal, meaning major capitulation volume, just massive amount of volume, everyone dumping uh, their shares, or some sort of reversal where uh, you know you have uh, maybe a gap lower and a close a lot higher on the day and close near the high on a high volume, you know those are signals to me that uh, the, the bottom is in. But I'm not seeing that signal. So for now, it just remains on the watch list. Okay. Uh, and you have to listen to what the market is saying until you get better signals. And unfortunately, for PayPal, it's not there yet. Let's go to Alberto in San Jose who wants to talk about EYEN. Yes. Hello, Justin. Thank you for taking my call. I love your show. Appreciate it. Um, yeah, I was wondering about uh, this company, EYEN. I know they recently got approval from the FDA for one of their products. It's a medical device for eye care. However, the stock has gone down since that announcement. I wanted to get your opinion on it. Well, this is a small biotech name, only about $125 million market cap. I don't, I don't know much about this clinical uh, trial approval, what the, mark, the, the addressable market is for the product. Uh, but earnings, analyst earnings are getting a bit better for the next year or two, uh, but they still don't have any revenue. And I don't know when this is going to hit market. Uh, and the, and the, 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 the stock trading or stock, stock uh, technicals are not telling me that this news is all that amazing, right? It moved up and quickly reversed. Right? It went from $1.50 back in the end of last year all the way to $5.75. Now it's back down to three twenty nine. Uh, it's some support right here, right around, uh, excuse me, in the low threes. But yeah, I don't, this is a name that's consistently lost money. And unless I have a really strong grasp of the addressable market for this product and how much true revenue and profits this is going to create, then I, I just, I just pass on these type of names. You really have to do really deep dive. Um, and it's not just about the approval. A lot of people, they, they, they're chasing that approval. Oh, it's going to, you know, uh, have its first product and that's great. But how much revenue can they do? What, what, what is, what is the addressable market for this product? Is it $500,000 a year? Is it $500 million per year? I need to know what that is. And the market is telling me it's not that big. 
Their product is not that amazing. It's not creating, uh, it's not curing cancer, let's just say that. So until I have a better grasp on that, I'm going to pass on it. Thanks for the call. Now, Steve and I have been telling you for a while now that we are in a new market cycle. It's a natural part of life. We all go through our ups and downs and markets go through, through their ups and downs. Subsectors of the markets go through their ups and downs. Different style factors in the markets go through their ups and downs. And we went through a long period where interest rates were low and you had a certain type of market. Well, we're in a new market. Interest rates are higher. Inflation's higher. And so the question is, are, you, is, are your strategies ready to fit the times? If you need help understanding whether you're in the right uh, track, don't hesitate to reach out to myself or Steve at our company, KP Financial, where we practice parallel investing, which means we invest right alongside our clients. So reach out to us and set up a free portfolio review assessment over on investtalk.com. Now we're heading into our last break. So give me a call now at 888-99-CHART. You've got finance and investment questions, and Justin Klein and Steve Peasley are ready with their unbiased answers. Don't forget to call Invest Talk 888-99-CHART. Hi, Steve and Justin. Great program. I was calling you about uh, to get your opinion on uh, Whirlpool. The symbol is uh, WHR. Missed its earnings. It pays over a 5% dividend, mid-cap. The price has been dropping and dropping. See what a good entry point is for this stock. Thank you. I'll be listening. All right, looking at Whirlpool, and their business has certainly slowed since the pandemic, and earnings this year are expected to be down 19% to roughly $16 per share from 19 and change last year. And yeah, it's in a consistent downtrend. Let me look at find some support levels because this has been in a downtrend since May of last year. So uh, pretty much a year straight. Oh gosh, where is the support on this thing? It's a tough one. Yeah, it's, it's below the major support levels. I don't really have a, a good support level and uh, certainly with the economy slowing and home purchases slowing, you're going to have less appliance purchases. And that's what you see. The cash from operations trailing 12 months is at about one and a quarter billion. And that's down from a high of nearly three billion. So you've had a full round trip to uh, basically pre-COVID levels. And the stock has done a round trip as well. So it would make sense. Okay. Uh, the biggest issue I see is they have a decent amount of debt on their balance sheet. Uh, this is tough. This is kind of the same boat as um, as PayPal. Is it cheap? Yeah, it's pretty cheap. Price sales ratio is 0.37, which historically is maybe slightly below average, not deeply, uh, you know, not very low, uh, but below average. And so I would need some sort of technical indicator this is going to turn around and I'm just not seeing it yet. That's slowly improved over the past month. You're making a few higher highs, but the longer term trend remains down. So if this can break above the 200 day moving average, I'd be interested in it. That's at about 145. Now it's at 131, but I need more technical improvement. And until then I'm passing on Whirlpool. All right. 
Now, lastly, let's touch on the debt ceiling. And, you know, we had the caller earlier talking about it. And, you know, frankly, this is this is not a discussion of spending. This is a discussion of the debt ceiling. You know, it's like I have borrowed money for a car and I need to pay it back. Should I pay it back or not? Well, you probably should have decided whether you should have bought that car in the first place. Okay. And once again, this is both sides of the aisle. You know, we're at record deficits right now, or not record, but, you know, very high deficits right now uh, under Biden. Well, but under Trump, we grew our tr national debt from 20 trillion to 30 trillion. And half of that was pre COVID. So, and then, you know, every president before that, from, uh, uh, from Obama to Bush to Clinton, it's all gone up. So both sides of the aisle are to blame. If you are blaming one side of the aisle or the other, this is your politics speaking. There is no object objective way to say this is one side of the aisle's fault or another. Okay, they're both to blame. Now, this, this debt ceiling thing is something only we do. Only Denmark has a debt ceiling and they haven't made it a major issue. So it's so unique to us. And the, tres the Treasury Department has warned that by June 1st, other forecasts are maybe as early as, uh, as, as late as August, um, we're going to come to, you know, rubber meat in the road. We need to figure something out. And they could do a lot of different things. They could prioritize debt payments over obligations like government wages, Social Security, VA benefits. I don't think they, I think they'd pay Social Security, but maybe VA benefits, maybe some government wages. Uh, they did this back in 2011, 2013. There was government shutdown. And, you know, eventually they go to some sort of resolution because there's too much political pressure. And eventually it's all about, hey, getting money for your constituents and, you know, your pet projects. And so this is a lot, a whole lot of dire economic warnings and headlines that are designed to get clicks and get people to pay attention. At the end of the day, it'll be an 11th hour deal that gets something done, whether that kicks the can down the road six months or, or six years, uh, it's, it's probably going to happen. <laughs> um, so don't get too caught up in it. Uh, it's, there's a lot of brinksmanship uh, and that's ultimately just what it is. Now, I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening. And we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to rate and review. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461.